Good morning. If you are a guest with us today, I want to say welcome to you. I'm glad you chose to come here on a holiday weekend nonetheless. I thought we'd be a lot lower, and uh, I'm glad you were able to join with us, and we are uh, privileged to have you here with us. And um, if I haven't got to meet you yet, I'd, I'd love to shake your hand afterwards, so please uh, don't run out. Uh, we finish a little later than most people, so you uh, you should be able to get the lunch and not have to wait too long. So, um, Or you're welcome to join us. We always go out together. Uh, I'm glad you're here with us today. Uh, Matt, as you guys know, um, most of you is on vacation, um, which means I get the difficult passage that he decided to always leave me with. Um, so that's exciting. Um, if you have your Bibles, we are in Ephesians. We have been here for now 54, 7, 7, 57, 8, a lot, 60, really? Oh, I thought you he had six. I thought it was six. Fifty-six. Fifty-six weeks. That's over a year because that's fifty-two. Um, <laughs> so I was right. Okay, over a year. Um, it's been a good journey, uh, and I hope you are enjoying it and you've been able to see these themes really develop uh, in a special way. Um, but if you uh, have been kind of with us recently, we have kind of re-themed into this idea in chapter five of children of light. And indeed, what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying is there's really a hard distinction here that we have to draw as the church, and particularly as Christians in our culture and in our own lives. And that's something that we're going to be tackling today. Uh, so with that, let's, let, let me pray, um, and then we will get into our passage together. So, Father God, we thank you so much. Uh, Father, you are a good father, and you give good things to your children, uh, and I pray today that this message will be a good thing for your children. Father, my goal is to care for my brothers and sisters or your children today. Uh, I know it is a difficult passage. I pray that we do hear the warning. I pray that we take it seriously. I pray that we take it to heart and that we have uh, good soil with which our crop will grow to 30, 60, or 100. Uh, And Father, for those here that are your sheep, I pray that they will indeed hear your voice in this passage and in this message. Father, I pray that you will help me faithfully represent your call, uh, both to believers and then to those that are lost. Uh, Father, that do not yet know you or your son. Uh, Father, that the juxtaposition that is drawn between light and dark will have its effect as it exposes error and unfruitfulness and brings those that are in darkness to light, that they may be fruitful and have life. Father, we pray that your word has its weight, but Father, please let me be uh, caring in this time. Father, we look forward to your word dividing our hearts. As Greg prayed earlier, that we will be pierced. But Father, we know that your son was pierced for us, and we can trust in his work. Father, we love you, and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let us begin reading in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. But there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers and partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are going to divide up uh, 11 through 14 into two weeks. Uh, I'm doing that intentionally. Um, one is to, to make sure that Matt is able to do the following passage in 15. But as we begin to kind of break into this text, it becomes clear that there is one unified theme between these four, four verses that, of course, fits with the whole. But I think there's two distinct parts that we really need to tackle when it comes to the Christian life and living as children of light. Uh, and the first that we're going to talk about today is really kind of understanding uh, this idea of unfruitful works of darkness. And then what we're going to talk about next week particularly is in what manner and what way and what fashion has God given us specifically to do the task that he presents us with this week. Does that make sense? This week we're going to talk about the problem and we're going to talk about kind of the negative with a, a touch on the, the positive. And next week we'll talk about the means that he gives us of how to accomplish the task that we have set before us today. So with that, let's, uh, let's, let's look at this passage spe- specifically. When we talk about verse 11, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. At first blush, that doesn't make sense, all right? Take no part in these works, but instead expose them. How are you to expose that which you take no part of? How are you to expose that which you're not involved with, that you don't know, that you can't see, whatever it may be? It seems kind of confusing, and I appreciate the, the direction that Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the preacher that you heard in the bumper, takes in his uh, exposition of this passage. He begins talking about monasticism, about kind of being like a monk, and what it means to leave the world. And he talks about how uh, monasticism is a false view of Christianity. It's a false asceticism. It's, it's beating the flesh in a way that God did not intend for us to do. Now, I think What's interesting about this is that it's really, in many ways, the enemy of Christian truth. I mean, we have uh, people in church history, and then we have families in our culture that believe that the best way, the best path for their family is to pull away from the culture. And that's what keeps them safe. It's what lets them be set apart or sanctified, as we would legitimately say, right? But I think the problem is that monasticism is really an enemy of Christian truth because, because it strikes at the heart of Christianity. It robs the gospel of one of its greatest victories, and specifically that it enables us to, in the same world that we lived before, to live a new kind of life. If we think about it when we read uh, Jesus talking in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. If you want to flip over there with me. In John 17, uh, Jesus is praying for uh, the, the disciples and those that would come after, and he says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, for your word is truth. And as you have sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
So it's clear in Scripture that we're not to just leave, but I think most of us know the feeling of what it's like to kind of it gives rise to that of wanting to flee. I mean, we long to get away from difficulties, we long to get away from problems and people, kind of everything that tends to irritate us, right? It kind of the things that upset us, the things that get us down and get us depressed. Most modern psychology is going to say, yeah, flee those things. If you're upset about something, if, if something's bothering you, if it's a burden, if it's stressful, just leave. Get out. Get away from it. You don't need to be there. Don't. What does Scripture tell us? Go into it. Deal with it. Sanctify it. Be an ambassador of reconciliation. And, but I think we all kind of feel that desire to get away. We cry out with the psalmist, give me the wings of the doves and I might fly away from it all. And that's the spirit that leads to monasticism. But it's not Christianity. And thank God it's not. He gives us the help that enables us to live the Christian life, a Christ-like life, in the midst of our problems and our trials. That's a huge grace to us. So the, the very quick, easy answer of expose it and take no part and just get away is not the answer. The answer is to live in this world and to trust the power of the gospel to allow us to live in the same world that we lived before, but to live a completely different life. So with that, let's start to break down and understand specifically what Paul means, since he doesn't mean that. Verse 11, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The first thing I want you to see today is that darkness is unfruitful and has no place in the life of a believer. Darkness is unfruitful and has no place in the life of a believer. You see, the effects of darkness and light are antithetical. They are absolutely opposed to each other. I'm trying to remember that today is one of our family Sundays. We have our older kids in with us, so I'm going to change some of my language as we go. Um, darkness and light are absolutely opposite. They are antithetical. From the perspective of science, particularly botany in the case that we have today, we look at this idea of darkness and light, and in darkness we see that disease flourishes in the dark, and total darkness can bring death to earth's fauna, to, to floras. Similarly, spiritual darkness brings sterility. It's sterile. There are unfruitful works. There is nothing growing, nothing producing. There is no fruit found in darkness. It is absolutely sterile. These works yield no profit, and they have no point. That's a hard thing to drive home in our culture. That the works of darkness, these unfruitful works, yield no profit and they have no point. You see, darkness does many things. One of the things that it does first is it adversely affects the mind, the intellect, the understanding, and really all the faculties that are concerned with knowledge. And everything that kind of happens in our head when we use our intellect starts to fall apart in Darkness, And so when Paul says to the Ephesian believers, you were darkness, he means there was a time when their minds were dark, and they were grossly ignorant. If you, if you remember from our past, in our context here, it's not just that we were in darkness and now are in light, it is that we were darkness, and we are now light. 
being in darkness is supremely different than being darkness itself. And being in light is supremely different than being light. But for those that are believers, for the Ephesian believers that Paul is speaking to, he's saying you were darkness. There was a time when your mind was dark and you were grossly ignorant. And this remains true today of every person who is not a Christian. He or she is just ignorant. There's no other word for it. You're lacking in certain vital knowledge and specifically blinded by sin. So what are you, you ignorant of? I, that's, a, that's a big charge in our culture today. What are you ignorant of? First, I think that the loss of the person who is not a believer is ignorant of God. First and foremost, it is clearly that. The scripture tells us that the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. He says there is no God because he lacks the knowledge of God. And that is typical of ignorant people. They're not proving information wrong. You can give them a fact and they will say, no, I don't believe it. Right? That's typical of ignorant people. They're not proving the information wrong. They're just telling us a great deal about themselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses an example of a, of a person who, he says this, when a man tells me he sees nothing in Beethoven, he is telling me nothing about Beethoven, but he's telling me everything about himself. And that's the truth. Just because we don't see, just because we don't understand, just because we don't, can't or don't comprehend does not change the true nature of things, right? I'm not going to put them on the spot, but our kids, or two weeks ago at Kids Camp, learned the truth, what truth is, right? All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for what? I haven't put you on the spot. As he smiles and mutters, okay. It's useful for what? For doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God will be well equipped for every good work, right? That's what truth is. And just because we can't comprehend it, discern it, or understand it doesn't change the nature of the truth. Just because we don't like it, just because we don't agree with it, just because it's offensive, just because it's anything else does not change the fact that truth is truth. That is what absolute truth is. And when we disagree with it, or when we have opinions about it that are different or contrary to Scripture, we are not revealing anything about the truth itself, or we're revealing everything about us. You see, if people knew God and knew the truth about God, they would not continue to live as they do. They know nothing about His holy character. They talk of God glibly. They express their opinions. They do not hesitate to criticize Him. I have family that is is all the way down this path. Absolutely down this path. They went to the Reason Rally in D.C. about a month ago. They mock God. I'm not going to stand there with the protesters saying God will not be mocked and hold up my nicely you know, angry sign. That's not what we're going to be talking about today and next week. That's not the answer. But the truth of the matter is, is that they do mock God. They talk of Him glibly. They express their opinions and they don't hesitate to criticize, but if they had some dim, vague, just glimmering notion of God as he really is, then they would put their hands on their mouths so that they would be silent as Job did in the Old Testament. Let's be careful to speak too freely of God. God is not your homeboy. God is your friend in so much as the fact that your father is your friend. He is first and foremost a holy father God, creator of the universe. We need to be careful how we Christians approach our discussion of God, lest we falsely give the wrong impression to those that are lost even more so. 
You see, darkness shelters evil, and it helps it fester. Paul goes on to say that it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. You see, this dark works, these unfruitful works, they cannot please the Lord. Their source is darkness, and they bear the marks of this realm, the dominion of death. He just got done telling us to do what? Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's verse 10. It is right before this. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And these works of darkness cannot do that task. They cannot. Because they are antithetical to who God is. They are darkness and He is light. This is the dominion of death. This earth, this realm is darkness. And so the people who carry out these actions can be described as darkness. Just as we were once darkness, they are as well. Their works, catch this, their works reveal their true condition and show that they embody this realm in their own persons. They embody death. They are ignorant of God and they are also ignorant of the real truth about themselves. Ignorant about the value of their own soul. So it's not just that it affects our intellect and our understanding of God, but it affects our intellect and understanding as it relates to ourselves. We understand God wrongly and we understand ourselves wrongly. If you cast a glance at people living in pleasure and in sin, like not just experimenting with it, plunging into it, glorying in it, reveling in it, the real trouble with them is that they do not know the answer to the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? If you ask them that, they do not know the answer. They do not realize that there is within them this thing that has been placed there by God, which is greater than the whole world, the most precious, the most wonderful thing of all. They're completely ignorant about it. And they live as if they had not an immortal soul. They live on an animal level. And we know these people. They're found at every level of society. And in spite of, of their knowledge and sometimes even their vast knowledge of another subject, I'm not saying that they're stupid. I'm saying that they're ignorant of God. They, they can have vast, vast supreme knowledge of many other subjects, yet still remain ignorant. They're ignorant of the true meaning of life, its object and purpose. Ignorant of God, ignorant of self, ignorant of life. What is life? What are we meant for? What is the whole point of our being in this world? And what is the end to which all this is leading? On these themes, they have no answer. They're completely in the dark. If you ask them these questions, what answers will you get? You see, their whole notion of life is, is stated in Ecclesiastes. is let us eat and drink for tomorrow, we die. What an insult to life. What an insult to life and to living and to human nature. Are we just animals? Are we just eating and drinking and indulging the natural instincts? Is that what constitutes real life? Is that the purpose? Is that the, is that the end? Is that the goal? The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We often forget that last part. We all know that death is coming. We may not realize it or be mindful of it. But after that appointed death is the judgment. According to Scripture, life is a tremendous thing. It's full of responsibility, particularly of the most momentous character. 
And the responsibilities that are given to humans on this earth are far and beyond anything else that was created. The level of dominion that we have, control that we have over this earth is unsurpassed by any other creature that was created. We have a huge responsibility to this planet, to people, and to God. All we do and all we say is being recorded. All of our actions are known to God. And Revelation says it very pictorially. It says that the books that we basically have written with our actions will be produced in front of God and will be opened. You see, we are directly and immediately and personally responsible to God. We will have an audience with Him and we'll have to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether they were good or whether they were evil. It's a judgment. It is a proclamation on the actions and quality of your life. But unbelievers are entirely ignorant of the things of God. That's why they live as they do. Many Christians have tested this, and I I, I pray that you would too. If you haven't done this, try it. Try to discover what people really do know about Christianity and about Jesus Christ. It's almost incredible that although we have the Bible and other Christian books, and they're, they're absolutely openly available, and although they have been, some of them have been brought up in so-called Christian homes or up until recently our Christian culture, in many cases have a vague sense of the value of that, they still remain completely ignorant of the real Lord Jesus Christ and His way of salvation. Ask these simple questions. Have you realized that you have a soul? Have you realized the truth about God and that you have got to meet Him one day and face Him? Have you realized day by day the responsibility of living, the the preciousness of this gift that God has given to you? Do you think of yourself as one who has been made and created in the image of Almighty God? What is your view of yourself? Who are you? Have you thought about your death and about facing God and giving Him an account of what you've done? You see, the answers, if any, that you will get to these questions, well, I'm absolutely certain, only confirm the truth of what the Apostle tells us about the appalling ignorance of mankind. It's a darkness that can be felt. The darkness doesn't just stop at the mind, though, and how we think of God and ourselves and of life and our purpose here. It affects the heart, too. Jesus says that this is condemnation, that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I mean, can anything be worse than a human being that has a heart and has life but hates life and light and detests it? Darkness is this realm. Believers, you were darkness and you have been made light. If we're going to understand this idea of being children of light and being imitators of God and beloved children of light, if we're going to understand what it means to walk in light and to do these actions, these works that were prepared in advance for us by God, that we would walk in them, then we must understand what darkness is. 
And we have to understand it in this way, because if we try to do it in the way that we're getting ready to talk about, we'll be pulled into the darkness. We have to understand it in the idea that it is unfruitful, it is sterile, it is pointless, it has no value. I can try all day to convince you that it's dangerous, that it's not fun, that it's not really fun, that there will be consequences, all these other things. And some of them will be moderately effective in trying to sway you away from the darkness, but it will not bring you out of darkness. The only thing that brings out of darkness is light. The only thing that pierces darkness is light. And so the only way that I can convince you to stay away from darkness, if you are a believer, or to come out of darkness, if you are not a believer, is to show you light. And so while I've just described it in its very fundamental sense, that in itself is not going to pull you from darkness. It will help you understand it, but it will not pull you from darkness. When we look at light, on the other hand, light promotes life. I mean, you think about it a very practical way, even in this botany sense that we're talking about with plants. Patio plants can flourish in the basement during the winter with fake light. It's just light. It needs light. And then when you bring them back out in the spring into the sun again, they flourish even more. (coughs) You think about our bodies. Broken bodies heal faster if we can soak up sunlight. Light brings life. Look at Titus 3.14. It tells us what we were made for, what our bodies are supposed to do, what light is. It says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and what? Not be unfruitful. What is unfruitfulness? Darkness. We are called to light that we may be fruitful. It's important to recognize too that light also awakens. When we talk about being darkness, we talk about it in the realm of death, right? Ephesians chapter 2 lays out for us, and we're going to read it again in just a second, that we were not just darkness, but we were dead, dead in darkness. Light awakens, it brings to life. Just to touch on where we're going next week in 14. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine light on you. Light brings life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and now we have been made alive to God in light. We were dead in darkness, but light awakens. Light is also persistent. If you think about light in that way, it is constantly assaulting the earth and penetrating the smallest opening. The darkest place is not safe from it, particularly as we're going to see next week, and it being our primary method. And so light produces fruit that pleases God. That's the goal, right? Verse 9, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Light is pleasing to the Lord because it yields fruit but darkness or a denial of sun. Think of it this way, like a tarp on top of a lawn. You left your slip and slide out all week. You left your small inflatable pool outside all week, right? And what happens when you finally move it? Death, right? Nasty, yellow, stinky, flat, critter, potentially infested, yellow grass, right? It's denied light. It's denied life. It's choked out. It's fruitless. It's sterile. 
darkness is a denial of sun. It's fruitless. It yields non-producing, literally barren or sterile deeds. See, though sin may be pleasant for a season, it ultimately fails to produce the harvest of fulfillment that it promises. It is fruitless. It is fruitless. You see, this description of the works of darkness is unfruitful. It's part of the theme of futility of existence in the unbelieving world that Paul has already developed. Flip with me back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It was fruitless. It was pointless. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened and their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. This is not a new theme. Due to the hardness of heart, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Unfruitfulness stands in utter contrast to the purposeful, goal-oriented existence that characterizes the believing community because of its union with Christ. You were created for good works that you may walk in them. And so unfruitfulness stands in absolute contrast to the purposeful, goal-oriented existence that characterizes the believing community in the kingdom of light. We are united with Christ, and we are called to walk in light. Christians have no place in darkness whatsoever. It is unfruitful. second thing I want you to see is that Christians must expose darkness by being light. Christians must expose darkness by being light. says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So let's look at that. We just said that unfruitfulness stands in utter contrast to the goal-oriented, kingdom-expanding union with Christ Christians and the church are, are in, right? It stands in utter contrast to that. But the problem is this. Our culture and even many churches love the open-minded, non-judgmental, live-and-let-live personality. But the problem is for us that God's Word allows no such luxury. If the Scripture calls something wrong, we dare not call it otherwise. Now, what I find interesting at this moment is that I've not named anything specifically this entire sermon. But I can guarantee you have about three or four things that keep coming up in your mind when I mention darkness, not partaking in them, death, sterility, all of these things. Our culture particularly. Why is that? Why do you have these things come to mind? I've not had to name anything yet, and I'm not going to yet. I think we understand that there are things that are shameful. We're going to talk about that in a minute. 
But keep track of these things that are coming to your mind. Because when we're talking about a hard passage like this, this is, this is what I was praying for earlier. This can, this can be hard. I get that. But we have to understand that we follow Scripture first. If Scripture calls something wrong, we dare not call it otherwise. Listen, though, this is not to suggest that we go around looking grim as death, maliciously just mouthing our don'ts to people. What it does mean is that we must call sin what it is and expose it. There is a big difference between those two paths. We have a responsibility and we have the task to live as light and to call sin what it is and thus expose it for what it is. Our call is to expose sin wherever it is, within our camp or outside it. Uh, Adultery is sin. Lying is sin. Materialism is sin. Neglect of the poor is sin. Child neglect is sin. Even in expensive suburban wrappers, it is still child neglect. It is sin. We must be willing to be called negative, narrow, judgmental, puritanical, or bigoted. Those titles, those names, those labels will flow forth from our culture. But unfortunately, many Christians are so barely able to keep their own spiritual and moral houses in order that they do not have the discernment, the inclination, or the power to confront evil in the church or in the society at large. We should be so mature in biblical truth and in obedience, holiness, and love that part of the natural course of our life is to expose, rebuke, and offer the remedy for every kind of evil. And we've already talked about where that comes from. It comes from Truth. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for doctrine or teaching, for correction, rebuke, and reproof. That the man of God may be equipped for every good work. We should be so mature in biblical truth, in obedience to that truth, in sanctifying holiness, and in love that comes from the Father and His Son's gift to us, that part of our natural course of life is to expose, rebuke, and offer the remedy for every kind of evil. But instead, what it becomes is a task. It becomes something that we have to prepare for before we go into the public forum and launch our argument. That's not Christianity. That's soapbox religion. Christianity, the Christ follower, is light. He doesn't step into the light and try to show the light. He is light. And he exposes by being who he is. By being who she is. In the workplace, at home, on the sports field, wherever they may be, they expose sin by being who they are because they are obedient, they are grounded in biblical truth, they are living holy lives, and they love people in such a way that they expose, rebuke, and offer the remedy for every kind of evil by pointing to the gospel every time. We have a specific rebuke to not partner with darkness earlier but here we are 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 specifically even further told to take no part of take no part of see in verse 7 he says do not become partners with them but in verse 11 take no part in the acts the warning to us is to consider whether our exposure to such matters comes as a consequence of trying to expose them or to enjoy them. You see, largely I've been talking about out there. You can basically hear everything that I've said is out there. 
The challenge today is to say, where's darkness here? Where's darkness here in my pew, in my chair? Where's darkness? You see, the temptation for Christians in exposing darkness is to forget the exposure. We forget that we are being exposed. We talk about redeeming the culture, but on that journey of redeeming culture, we can simply join in with the rest of the culture. It's entertainments, it's speech, it's habits. They eventually become our own, and we blithely talk about them in our context without even realizing that they have no place in the life of the children of light. I'm guilty of this. I have been for a while. Part of my thing before was I am a culture researcher, so I must experience culture so that I can properly speak against it. Right? But then I can watch all kinds of stuff. And I, it doesn't affect me. I'm a pastor. I can take it, right? I can take sin. I can take the exposure. That, that is a horrible lie. That's a horrible lie. I'm a culture warrior. I'm, I'm taking the brunt of this sin so that I can make sure that youth don't have to. I don't have to either. He says don't. Done. What more is there to know? There's such a tendency in the church to want details about things so that we can experience them vicariously. We would never dream of doing those great, awesome, terrible sins. But we sure like to hear about them. And I don't understand where that comes from in our hearts. I think we forget the doctrine of total depravity. It's an important beginning place in almost any Christian life and walk and, and even sermon. We are totally depraved. Total depravity means that we are absolutely incapable of doing anything that is righteous apart from the grace of God. It's going to go so far as to say that the philanthropist that gives millions of dollars to alleviate hunger is doing an evil act if he doesn't do it in the name of God. And that seems absolutely crazy. Of course it's good. He's helping feed the hungry. He's doing it for self-promotion. That's evil. It may have good consequences for the rest of the world, but his specific act, his selfless giving, is evil. If it's not done in the grace of God, to the glory of God. And we are there. We are totally depraved. Even once you are saved, you are still totally depraved. You are still in this flesh. You can have victory over it, but you are still totally depraved until the consummation. And that's why we cry out for Christ to come again, that we will be delivered from this body of death, as Paul says. And so we would never dream of the, the drunken binge and driving. We would never dream of the, the strip club crawl. We would never dream of these terrible sins, but we like to hear about them. That's why we watch cops. That's why we watch the news. That's why we gossip. In the church, we like to hear the sins of other people. It makes us feel better, and it lets us participate in their sin without being guilty of it ourselves. And so I think the best test is whether we are bold enough to actually call the darkness truly dark and expose it as evil. We have to look at a bunch of different pieces in working through this. It's a difficult passage. It's a difficult task. And so we have to be sure that we are not partnering or partaking together. 
first and foremost. We cannot, we are not, to partake in the darkness. It is unfruitful and it is pointless. So let's look then at our motives. Whether our actions lead us to enjoy or to expose the darkness leads to a question of motive. Here the essential question has been put before us by Paul just a second ago. Here's the question that you ask if you want to know what your motive is. The question is this. Am I trying to find out what pleases the Lord? Am I trying to find out what pleases the Lord? That is what we are to try to find out. Is our motive to figure out what will make us more holy and Christ's name more hallowed in this world? That is the question. Otherwise, there's a good chance that we are trying to partake in that sin. From the TV we watch to the books we read, the music we listen to, biggest question is our motive. Are we trying to figure out what pleases the Lord? And so our motive then gives way to our method. You see, even in Christian circles, there's going to be those that beckon us to the darkness, claiming that we will be, that we will there learn better the darkness that we're to expose. This is what I just talked about a second ago myself. But Paul states the opposite. He says this, that the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Didn't he just say that, right? Walk as children of light. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Paul's saying that the fruit of light consists in those things. And so darkness is best exposed by light rather than more darkness. There's no exposure when you go into a dark room and turn off the light in the hall and say, yeah, the room's still dark. Duh. That's not the point. To best expose that room, you walk into the room and turn on the light. He makes it clear that the radiance of holiness will make the fruitlessness of evil more apparent. We're not trying to show that dark is dark. We're trying to show that dark is dark because of light. Adding more darkness to darkness doesn't help expose. Adding light to darkness exposes everything. Think of it this way. It's better to shine a light in a dark room than it is to stumble around in the darkness so that you can know its dimensions. This is a, we do this task, dads, all the time after we have kids, and we swear all the way to the kitchen as we step on Legos, kick toys, and run into walls, right? I did that last night. All right, that's what we do. We try, instead of turning on the light, we, we feel our way where we're going, right? Is that effective? No. Is it exposing? No, we still don't know everything that's in the room. It's not just a pragmatic thing. It's a biblical thing. Light is the only thing that exposes. <clears throat> Something I specifically want to draw our attention to now as we head towards the end is this. Notice, we are to expose the unfruitful works. The unfruitful works, not the persons themselves. This means that we're talking again about believers or unbelievers take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness the only person that we are talking about is the realm of darkness take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret let's look at this last part of shame verse 11 speaks of the fruitful deeds of darkness, And what it's really focusing on here is the evil character of those works. 
and the fact that they are utterly futile. But these things that are shameful are always done in secret. People don't want their sins to be brought into the open, right? Jesus says in John 3.20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Because his works will be exposed. (coughs) You see, this is incredible to me, and I hope you don't miss this. Our calls are certainly trying to get rid of it, but don't miss this. Man, after all, whether he believes it or not, was made in the image of God. Yes? And he shows it when he least suspects it. An unbeliever, someone who does not profess Christ, is still made in the image of God, and they expose and show that knowledge of that even when they least suspect it. You see this. Though he does not believe in God, and though he does not believe in his own soul, and though he does not believe or have any idea what the purpose of life is, all the things that we mentioned earlier, though they are fallen and degraded, this sense of shame is still in him. And thanks be to God for that. Because man is not an animal. Man is not a machine just producing evil all the time without regard to anything going on around them. There remains and abides in him. Though it's marred and ruined, there is something of the image left. And man, even at his lowest and at his vilest, still knows something about a sense of shame. That's mind-blowing. Paul asserts that it's shameful even to mention them, much less to do them. But, but this is exactly why our culture mentions them. Right, we're told not to mention these things because they are shameful. But our culture mentions it all the time. Why? They're trying to remove the shame by making it acceptable, by making it okay, by saying that when you don't mention it, it's dehumanizing. Precisely. It is dehumanizing to do these shameful things. Instead, what our culture wants to do is call them clean, to say that it is not shameful, to say that it is okay. They are calling clean and light what God calls death and darkness. We cannot call something clean and light when God calls it death and darkness. Paul utterly repudiates these sexual sins specifically we're talking about in context. I'm just going to let it go here. We're specifically talking about these sexual sins, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul utterly repudiates these sexual sins, but he desires to convey their seriousness. But he does it without mentioning the details of the depravity. Paul practices what he's talking about here. Paul and his readers knew what they were, but he's not going to dignify them by naming them. Instead, he wants the light of the gospel to shine through the readers' lives and expose these deeds for what they are. 
The apostle seems well aware that allowing the sinful and profane practices of the surrounding culture into the conversation, just the conversation of Christians, will plant destructive images and considerations in the mind. And what happens and what does happen and what has happened to me and I think to you too is that we will ultimately be desensitized. It's going to make us accept or even tolerate what we should abhor. It's going to allow us to tolerate what tempts us or it may cause us to actually desire something that displeases God. When we are so familiar with the profane that it no longer offends and we have forgotten how to blush even because of it, then we are in grave spiritual danger. Paul's words remind us to beware of giving sin, even sin of which we disapprove, entry points into our lives through too little awareness of how even it's mentioned, whether it's speech, entertainment, jesting, discussion, whatever it may be. It may actually give it a place to grow in our hearts. We have to be careful what comes through our eyes and our ears as it goes into our heart because what we allow into our heart will come out. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We cannot bring out a treasure that is good from our heart when we are putting nothing but filth in. This is a radical point of obedience that I think many of us are are not accustomed to. And I want to be careful now as we kind of begin to wrap this up that we don't only think about out there. That before we get into next week of really understanding how we do the full exposure, particularly as it pertains to the gospel, exposing sin in a very special and unique way, that we don't skip this week, as unfun as it may be, of understanding that this is something that we have to look out for ourselves. The immediate context, yes, sexual immorality. Greed. Those are the two main specific, specific contextual pieces. It is not out of bounds, particularly with his list in verse 4 and in 5, for us to take the implication of all acts of darkness. It is not beyond bounds to do that. How do you let in? How do you expose yourself to? Sexual immorality. You may never dream of one of the things that we're talking about here that Paul is specifically naming. But is there a piece of you that likes to hear about it? Maybe it's not that you you like to hear about it or that you like to entertain the thought, maybe. But maybe it doesn't affect you. Maybe you become desensitized to it. Our culture sure has. I don't have to name the things that we just found out that Michael Jackson was involved in. We all knew. Now we really know. And what is our culture going to do? He's still the king of pop, right? How are you going to say anything evil about this man? How can we say anything but evil about that man? We're desensitized to it. And it's easy to it's easy to rationalize. It's so easy to rationalize. And something that I've been convicted of for a couple years now, but I wish I was before that. 
We just have no business messing with this stuff. In any form. I'm being general on purpose. We have no reason to participate in darkness. Kids at school, your friends, they want you in darkness. They do. It's going to be fun. It will be fun for a moment. And then you will regret it for the rest of your life. Now, yes, that's a pragmatic reason. Spiritual reason. Is it pleasing to the Lord? If it's not pleasing to the Lord, it's something that the wrath of God is coming for. If you're a believer, it's something that the wrath of God came upon the Son of God for you for. We're flippant about sin. We are flippant about our depravity. We are flippant about the price that Jesus paid on the cross. Yes, believer, here's the joy piece. You're set free from sin. Yes, the price has been paid. Caution. Stop piling wounds up on the back of Jesus. Danger. You are light. Walk as light. Lest you find out that instead you were darkness all along. John will say in his first epistle that we can know that we are children by whether or not we are obedient to his commands. It means kids at school, stay away from the darkness. Kids at home, obey your authority. It's pleasing to the Lord. It should be able to be said in Christian homes, why don't we do that? Well, son, because we are Christians. It should be able to be said, we are different. Why are we different? Because we're light. Why are we light? Because we were made light. Light came upon us, it brought us to life, and now we walk in these things. We must be obedient. We must be careful not to expose ourselves and our families to things that will bring them into darkness. To tell you about a missionary named Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael often said that her ministry of rescuing temple children started with a girl named Prina. Having become a temple servant against her wishes, Prina managed to escape. Now, Prina, as a temple servant, was basically a temple prostitute in India. But when she escaped, Amy Carmichael provided her shelter and withstood the threats of those who insisted that the girl be returned either to the temple directly or back to her parents for a more indirect return to the temple so that she can continue her sexual assignments. Soon, the number of such incidents grew, and that kind of began Amy Carmichael's new ministry of helping rescue these children out of temple prostitution in India. And when the children were asked what drew them to Amy, they most often replied, it was love. Amy loved us. What's fascinating about her is that in respecting Indian culture, members of the organization, that, uh, the, the ministry that she started, wore Indian dress, and they gave the rescued children Indian names. And Carmichael herself, dressed in Indian clothes, and I love this one. I have to get coffee into every sermon. I don't know why. It's my, my personal gospel. Uh, she dyed her skin with dark coffee so that she would look 
more Indian. And she would travel long distances on India's hot, dusty roads just to save one child from suffering. And while serving in India, Amy received a letter from a young lady who was considering life as a missionary. Amy herself was inspired by Hudson Taylor, the great uh, missionary, and began China Inland Mission. It was a huge missionary kind of revival, if you will, particularly, obviously, in China, but even in missions movement. She was inspired by Hudson Taylor, and so this lady asks Amy, what is missionary life like? You think about writing these letters, right? What's it like to be a firefighter, right? You send it off to the firehouse, and they send you back a little badge and everything, right? She writes to this missionary, to Amy, and Amy writes back saying simply, missionary life is simply a chance to die. Amy Carmichael was one of the main inspirations of Jim Elliott. Many of you are familiar with him more so than Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael. Jim Elliott gave his life in missions. We sang today, to live as Christ, to die as gain. We read it in Philippians. Missionary life is simply a chance to die. Why do I bring her up? Yeah, that's an awesome story. That's about bringing light to a dark place. By, by being the gospel. Where is Amy from? England. Amy had an enormous difficulty in raising support for her ministry in England. You guys hear that? Are you ready to give? Even, you know, your lunch money? It's a good story. It's a good ministry. That's something that we would be about helping. That's why we have NAM. That's why we have the IMB. We give to those things because that's awesome. But she didn't have those things. She had to raise her own support. And she had an incredible difficulty raising it because of Victorian sensibilities that made it impolite for her to mention the horror that thousands of children faced. So desensitized. So above. Terrible sin. So above the struggles and, and darkness of this world that we can't even bear to hear it. This is true of our culture. This is true of us. I can't rush headlong into the gospel answer next week without us stopping to think, am I participating in unfruitful works of darkness? Am I desensitized to darkness? Is my light shining bright or am I dim? Love that does not openly expose and oppose sin is not biblical love. You do not love your brothers and sisters and you do not love the people out there if you are not willing to openly expose and oppose sin. Everyone loves to mention love. It comes out of everywhere in our culture. Our culture even knows 1 Corinthians 13. That's the love chapter, right? Every Christian knows that reference. Verse 6, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing or rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. We missed that one. It's just patient and kind, right? It doesn't judge thinks of others better than ourselves. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing or rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with truth. Love that does not openly expose and oppose sin is not biblical love.
Last thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only method of exposure and transformation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only method of exposure and transformation. I believe for a sermon to be faithful, we have to be faithful to the text and explain the meaning of it. I hope that I have done that. And we also have to present the gospel. And I don't intend to just tag it on in the end. I hope it doesn't feel that way. I'm trying to help set us up particularly for next week. Understand that we can try and we do, unfortunately, fight our culture all the time in ways that we, we should, whether that be politically, through apologetics, whatever it may be, but we do it with the wrong tools. We are called to be ambassadors, right? It's not a shameless plug. I stole it from there. Some of you know what I mean. We are called to be ambassadors, For what purpose? To make our appeal. To plead that you be reconciled with God. We are to be ambassadors. That is the gospel. We go forth, proclaim the light and the good news, make our appeal and plead that people would be reconciled to God. And so it is not a tag on here. It is the exposure itself. The gospel is the only tool. It is the only way. It is the only method of exposure and transformation. When we expose sin, whether it be in the life of a believer or in the life of the lost, and we do it without the gospel, we are being self-righteous. Or we are being not loving and judgmental in the way that our culture would name it. But when we do it in the light of the gospel, we are making a judgment not on the person, but on the sin. And if you continue in this judgment of sin, you will ultimately be judged for the sin. Our appeal, our ambassadorhood or ship, must be based out of the light of the gospel. If we go and try to just explain practically why sin doesn't make sense. It may have some small fruit, but it will not be transformative. For the most part, I'm a very information-driven guy. If you tell me facts about things that are negative towards me, I will seek to make sure that I change the facts. If you tell me that driving in a certain way increases my likelihood of death, I'm going to change the way I drive. It doesn't take much for me, okay? I don't need to see it. I don't need to experience it. I just need to know the truth. And when I know the truth, then I respond rightly most of the time. But our culture can't just simply receive truth for truth's sake because it's practical, because it's good, because it's helpful. They don't care. If we're honest, we don't care. The only thing that actually transforms people is the truth of the gospel. Not just a change in life, not just something that's comfort-driven. We think about all of our idols and we try to get people to worship our idols. Don't do that. It will lead to discomfort. Don't do that. It's not good for you. It won't get you where you want to go. It won't make people like you. Those are all the idols that we worship. 
And, and the gospel says, don't do that. It's not pleasing to God. Don't do that. It's sin. Don't do that. It takes away holiness. Don't do that. It leads to death. That is what changes people. That is the gospel. That is our only tool. When in our house gatherings, in our DNA, if we're not careful, we will give practical self-righteousness to each other. We will say, try this and see if it works. Try that and maybe it will go better for you. Our call, if we're going to be obedient to biblical truth, is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Don't try something else and hope it fixes it. Repent of sin and believe the gospel. Repent of your belief that that you have to provide everything and trust God that He provides. Repent of your belief that you must have something or that something that God said is not good is good. And believe that He is right. We repent and believe. And so it is the business of Christians in terrible, godless days like these to start with people on their own level and say to them, tell me why you do not practice things like this in the daylight. Why do you only practice these shameful things in the dark? And then start from this, this this seed of shame, and try to bring them to see how their whole view of themselves, of God, of life itself is based on utter ignorance, which, if it is not enlightened, will lead them to disaster, death, and final doom. You think about the love of God to look upon a world of this type of darkness and ignorance and depravity and shame, and He would send His only begotten Son into it. Not just to send Him, but to be the light of the world to us. And then by dying on the cross, He would deliver us from that darkness and ignorance and shame and death. And He would transfer us from the kingdom of darkness itself into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of His dear Son. That is the gospel, and that is the only thing that can change and transform. But if we don't rightly identify our tendency to enjoy and love darkness rather than light, if we don't seek to identify and expose in our own hearts our tendency towards these shameful things, we will miss the gospel. And we will miss it next week when we talk about what we are to do with it and what the gospel does. Not just what it is, but what it does. So I pray that this week, in house gathering and through the holidays, you seek what is pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray and we will continue in worship. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is is a good thing for us. Father, we are grateful that you discipline those that you love. Whether it be from hearing hard truth or deep challenges, and Father, that we will see the love and mercy that is given to us in the gospel. And Father, that the fact that we even maybe sense something today that is wrong or amiss in our life is your mercy and grace at work in our lives now. And Father, we pray that we would not be so desensitized, that we would miss the great mission that you've given for us. And Father, we would be willing participants in bringing your kingdom to fruition. Father, as we can then partner alongside you in bringing light to darkness and transferring people that are dead in darkness to life and light, that they will walk in the Word. 
Father, you are good to us. I thank you for a, a body of believers here at Renovation and the members that have committed to each other to help expose this type of sin in each other's life. I take it seriously. I take membership seriously. I take it in such a way that we love our brothers and sisters because they are faithfully wounding us. And Father, that we can trust that we don't see everything rightly and that others can come into our into the rooms of our life and flip on the switch and see what's there and expose that darkness. And Father, that we will be made more holy because of it. And Father, it's challenging, it's frustrating, but God, it is good for us. You give good things to your children. If our earthly fathers give us good things, how would you hold anything back from us? And Father, we can trust you and we can know that you love us in a a perfect way. It's not only just unique, it's not only just extreme and beautiful, it's perfect. Father, help us love you more than we love this world. Let it not be said of us that we love the darkness. Let it be said of us that we love the light. Father, we thank you for your gift and your son. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.